What's up, everybody? Welcome to an episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast that we've been aiming at for 31 other episodes. That's right. I went back. I did the math. I counted every single episode we've done on a Robert Jordan book. And today we're on episode 31 in the Wheel of Time. But ultimately, it's episode 30, sorry, 34, 64 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. And we have finally arrived at Tarman Gaidon. I am your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And now, buckle up, everyone, because we are in for one hell of a ride. Today, we dedicate an entire episode to covering Chapter 37 of Robert Jordan and Brander Sanders' Brander Sander Habba Habba, A Memory of Light. <laughs> I can't speak. Clearly, I've been drinking before we started this episode. So, Drew... Let's talk about The Last Battle. Would you care to give us a brief recap of the climactic war of the ages? <laughs> so it will be very brief because there are really only two options with this chapter. And one of those options is to basically just do a blow-by-blow breakdown of 220 pages of text, which I'm not going to do. <laughs> uh, but essentially, this just is um, the majority of the Battle of the Field of Marilor. The last battle, um, we have points of view from like probably over a dozen characters. I actually should have counted, um, but uh, tons of points of view, tons of scene breaks. Uh, we have some major character deaths, and uh, you know we have Swan goes down, Davron Bashir goes down, uh, Brigida is killed, Elaine is captured, Fayil goes down. Um, uh, Galad goes down, Gawain is killed, Egwene commits suicide in a massive uh, one-power Flame of Tarvalon attack. It is just um, craziness. So. Yeah. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28 viewpoints. Wow, okay. So have. I even underestimated there. Yeah. We have, and I will list them very quickly in order here. Uh, not in order, but in order of their appearance. Lan, Elaine, Uno, Loghain, Gawain, Tam, Pavara, Rand, Galad, Egwene, Fael, Perrin, Andral, Ruark, Silviana, Min, Dimandred, Juilin, Fortuona, Bashir, Arganda, Oliver, Liana, Talmanis, Ila, Huron, Berylaine, and Taim. Now, that's all nice. from library.tarvalon.net. I just looked that up really quickly, so if there's an issue with that, take it up with them! Not your friendly host, Rob. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's it's been... Ooh. Wow! Reading The Last Battle. It was so surreal to do for the first time. Uh, like, should we just begin chronologically? I'm going to say, start off the episode by saying, contrary to our usual routine, I don't have any style points in particular that I want to discuss. I'm sure we will be discussing style in some sort of organic, I hope, fashion later. Um, but I don't have ca- like separate character entries. I don't have favorite scenes chosen yet. Since we're only covering one <laughs> chapter today, no, no matter how long it is, I've just prepared a list of things I want to talk about. Reactions I had to everything that we have happening at the culmination of the entire series proper. So, so we start? I do have Go ahead. one style point, and I think oh, it's, yeah? it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty large scale one, and it's a good place to, to jump off. Okay. And that is the decision to write this chapter. <laughs> okay. That, I, that this is a, enough. you know, whatever... I don't remember the exact word count, but it, like it's like eighty or ninety thousand words. Mm-hmm. One chapter, it is longer than Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, or the Sorcerer's Stone. 
Um, it, it is it is a monster, and it was Brandon Sanderson's idea. Um, I, I know there's like a little bit of a misconception that that still lingers around that uh, Robert Jordan wrote this, uh, like the entire scene or the entire chapter. That's no, yeah, he, that's orders wrote, of magnitude more writing than he uh, actually did as far as I know, he wrote none of this chapter. He wrote the epilogue, most of the epilogue. But but there are very specific I, I things some... in this chapter, I think, that he planned for sure, yeah. Uh, there are a few, although uh, I'll get to that later. Um, so a lot. So, how yeah. a surprising amount of of it was uh, from Brandon and Harriet. Really? decisions together, yes. Oh, man, you got you piqued my interest on that one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, but but I want to talk about the decision to write this mammoth chapter. And, yeah. And what it does... As like a, a discrete literary work, just this one chapter, and in the grand scheme of the larger A Memory of Light book, and ask you like whether or not you think it, it landed. Um, obviously, the the point of this chapter was to be a slog. It was supposed to be exhausting. It was supposed to be, you know, just beating the reader down with with this endless, you know endless chapter because that's something that whether readers realize it or not there is a a you know a relief that comes when you're reading a book and you get to the end of a scene or you get to the end of a chapter and you see like when chapters stretch on longer than your usual you know maybe eight to twelve pages when you start seeing chapters stretch on into like 20, 25, 30 pages. I mean, there's there's a reason why so many people complain about the prologues in The Wheel of Time, because some of them are 100 pages long. And yet, here we have the climactic chapter of the whole series, and it's a very specific decision to write it in this style, to write one massive chapter that just goes on and on and on and on, where it's full of things going poorly for our heroes until the very end well I think I think there's something to be said about the length of this chapter and, and the narrative purpose that it serves this is something that we very briefly talked about uh, previously in that a lot of things are written in such a way particularly in these last three books to appear to give you exactly what you want even though you're not entirely certain you want it this is something i talked about actually in the very last episode and how yes a lot of in at one point rand is directly talking to our characters but in a real way he's talking to our readers as well saying oh you want blood you want battle you want chaos you want fighting trust me you are you are luckier than you know right now because before long you are going to get more than you can stomach this was rand talking to everybody in that scene the reader included and this chapter as a whole with its length really really exemplifies that i mean i will be honest when i was reading it for the first time i for a large it took me longer than i care to admit to realize that it was still the same chapter in a lot of ways that in um in some movie scenes for example that i've come to realize later it's like oh my god that was one take that was one single cut and, right. and, and when you learn to appreciate those sorts of behind-the-scenes looks, it's it, it really has a whole adds a whole dimension to it. I didn't realize that we were still on the same chapter until almost halfway through, when we were like a hundred pages in, and I was 
I was starting to consider, I was like, wait, there's no big cliffhanger yet. And that's when I realized we were still on the same chapter. So I think in a large part, it does what it's supposed to do very well. It brings the reader in and the reader loses themselves. Overall, they, 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 they don't really have that um, detached perspective. They are so invested, at least in my in my respect, I was so invested at that point that I didn't notice that it was all one long chapter until it really, really started to drag. But I saw the narrative purpose for it, and I appreciated it for what it was. And if for nothing else, for that final moment when we realize the chapter is over and you finally get to exhale and you finally get to breathe, and it's like, okay, the mountain has been moved. Right. Now let's budge that feather. I, I really... I mean, I love this whole this whole chapter. Would I have made like asked for it to be any shorter? No. But if you had explained to me just how long it was going to be as a young reader, I wouldn't have believed it. <laughs> I would not have believed it. Yeah, I remember uh, in advance of the actual release of the book, there were you know some screenshots leaked. You know, like Amazon had always has their like preview pages, and it always includes the table of contents. Really, and uh, and there was like a little bit of consternation. I remember in in the fandom when the Gathering Storm came out, and people saw the chapter list and saw the death of Tuon, you know, and people were like, Wait, uh... what? and then and then again with a Memory of Light when the chapter list came out, and you see like, oh, okay, chapter thirty seven, a Memory of Light, and then you look at the page numbers, and chapter thirty seven, <laughs> a Memory of Light starts on page six hundred seventeen of the hardcover. And chapter 38 starts on page 807. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, my God. Now, I imagine a lot of people, a lot of the posts were probably like, huh, I, I bet I caught uh, a typo. There's got to be a typo in the, final, in the final scene. And then a lot more of the intuitive fans probably went, well, if that's a typo, then the book's really not going to be that long. No, uh, it... At least as far as I saw, I didn't see anybody claiming typo. I just nope. saw a lot of people going like, holy crap, that is going to be the most epic chapter ever. Oh, it is like, called The Last Battle. Now that yeah. I think on it, they had some context for it being called The Last Battle. You know, this is something yeah. I'm just uh, providing a knee-jerk reaction on because I wasn't that part of the fandom back then. Or at least mm -hmm. I wasn't paying attention to the uh, intricacies online. Of course, you know what? No, that's actually a lie. I actually was in a small way, and I'm going to be bringing that back up later in the episode. Uh, <laughs> but for now, let's get into the meat and potatoes of Tarman Gaiden, The Last Battle. I want to I wanna talk about how we're starting here. Um, Lan, obviously Lan is going to be a huge part of the last battle. If you had asked me beforehand, going into a memory of light, you have one character who are, like, you are going to guarantee is going to die in this volume. I would have said, I'll land Mandragoran. I, I would I have said... to back up just a second. Would you? No, we go ahead. not start with Lan. Why not? Okay, sorry. We start with Loyal. Oh, sorry. I, when I say with... we, I'm an I. Like for, Dawn broke that morning on Paula of Heights, but the sun did not shine on the defenders of the light. Out of the west and out of the north came the armies of darkness to win this one last battle and cast a shadow across the earth to usher in an age where the wails of suffering would go unheard. We in have a book of Loyal, son of Arendt, son of Halan, the fourth age. We have an epigraph in the middle, like at the beginning of a yes. chapter. Yes. Yes. That's true. I hadn't considered that actually. I, you, that could have been actually a really cool style point to discuss too. Yeah, uh, that was going to be my segue into. <laughs> no, go for it, dude. Yeah, uh, I, did, I didn't consider yeah, that. It's there. So there are two things here uh, that stand out about this. One, it's unique. This is the only 
chapter epigraph we get in the Wheel of Time. And two, it says two things. From the notebook of Loyal, son of Arendt, son of Halon, the fourth age. Yep. Loyal is going to survive. And he's going to be writing from the fourth age. If they win this battle. If. Because I was going to add that caveat there. I was going to say, well, we've also seen viewings from Min, who is never mm-hmm. wrong, right? But okay, I'm glad that you added that caveat there. Yeah. So, so while we've always known, or we've had indicators throughout the series, that we will get to the fourth age. We have epigraphs all throughout the series from scholars in the fourth age. But this is the first one that is from a character we know writing from the Fourth Age. And that's a huge, huge signifier. I love that it was loyal, too. Yeah. But, to your point, going back to Lan, who's the first point-of-view character, um, I I agree with you. I thought he was going to die. Um, And I I want to try, in this episode, to avoid end-of-book spoilers. Because there there are a couple of things... That, like, really are only discussion points in the context of just this chapter, and Lan is one of them. Um, it, it's, it, it is exactly what you said. Going in, you know Lan is going to die. That's, that's been his... Uh, it's been his character arc. It's been set up since the very first book. That, like, his whole thing is sacrificing his life in defense of the light. You know, like, he's... He's just, he has this fatalism written all over him. Mm. Um, well, and and so opening the chapter with Lan and ending the chapter with Lan, killing Demandred, but taking a mortal wound at the same time, you're like, okay, this is thematically perfect. Like, this, this, this is the way to bookend the last battle. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So for me what it was that made me consider not not made me consider that made me concrete in the in the fact that Lan was going to die was the fact that one of Min's viewings beforehand had been Rand performing a borderland funeral him pouring rocks on sand well that was sorry that was the actual viewing him pouring rocks on sand with his hands yeah, why am I saying right. rocks? Water on sand, yes. <laughs> him pouring water on sand with his hands and then we learn I think it was actually in New Spring, which is a novel we really haven't referred to until now. Uh, I think it was in New Spring that we learned that that is a borderland, particularly I think it was a Malkyrie funeral. So that made me go, oh, well that doesn't spell a lot of gold for Lan's future. So going into this, seeing that it started off with Lan as a point of view character at the very beginning, I thought, yeah, Lan is definitely going to die. The way this is written is we start with Lan opening the last battle and end with Lan dying to end the last battle. Right? True. Like and and that is what I'm talking about a thematically perfect bookend to to this. And we can discuss the the aftermath of that in our next episode because there's going to be a lot to discuss about that. Um but it, it's like it, it's um it, it was a really really clever point of view choice like you said, because of this series-long build-up with Lan, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it would be easy to open the last battle chapter with Rand, you know? It would be easy to open the last battle chapter with Matt or Egwene. But yep. with Lan, it's both a bold move and a perfect one. And to close with Lan is both bold and perfect. Yeah. 
I mean, if there's one character to do it with, I mean, with Rand, I probably would have said, yeah, of course, it would have to be Rand. But Lan is just so thematically appropriate for this. He, like, it's, it, like, Rand is the one who is going to face the Dark One, but it is Lan, you know, it, it, it is Lan who is going to fight. It is Lan who is going to inspire men. It is Lan who is going to 1v2 to Murdral and kick both of their asses. It is land that's going to inspire mankind to keep fighting in their moment, in their most desperate moment of need. And I thought it was, it was just so cool. I would have bet money that he was going to die in this scene. I would have and, bet money. And it has been Lan the entire series who is the emblem of fighting the futile, delaying battle against the Shadow. Yeah, but the one that you cannot give up on. Yeah. Lan, yeah, Lan is the Paragon. Like he is, he is everything uh, about that, and and I mean I'm just glad that I'm not left from the last battle walking away with a sense of unsatisfaction. I am glad that everything I wanted to get out of Lan as a character happened in this chapter, especially with those final words, the final words that he thought he was going to hear in this world when he was thinking about that that lesson that he gave to Rand on sheathing the sword. To accomplish your goal. Mm-hmm. I am so glad that that came around full circle. All the way from the beginning of the great hunt. To the end of the last battle. It was such a great callback. And this is something. That, this is actually. I said it was going to happen at the end of the episode. But it, I think it's happening right now. When I said I was going to talk about. Something that has Robert Jordan's fingerprints all over it. We have to assume this is Robert Jordan. That, that planned. Lan is going to 1v1 Demandred. And it's going to be his lesson to Rand about sheathing the sword that wins the last battle. Right? Hmm. I don't know. Because that has Robert Jordan all over it, does it not? I think it does. I, I think you could make a good argument for that. Um, I'm going to do a little quick, uh, very, very quick uh, search to see if there are any uh, quotes about that. Um, uh, but you can keep talking while I do this. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, sorry, I'm, right now, actually, what I'm doing is I'm on the uh, Inking Out Loud Facebook group, and I'm looking at our comments on the post that I made about uh, anybody wanting anything for us to discuss during this particular episode. We have a few responses. We'll get to those later. Uh, but for now, I guess I'll, I will go on. That's the only concern I have is I, I, I my rest of my points go on from there, and I feel like I would leave you behind since you're looking up something that has contextual basis in what we're doing right now. Uh, my next points are about Swan, um, Pavara, and, and Andrel. Um, <clears throat> but I do want to mm-hmm. say, first off, rest in peace, Swan Sanchez. Like, it was, it was really interesting to note that, and I guess this might be more of a style discussion, if anything else. We're finally aware that a lot of gruesome stuff is happening behind the scenes. Like, we, we've known that the entire time. Um, but... We know there's Trollocs butchering people, and vice versa. People are butchering Trollocs. We know there are drag cars that are literally sucking people's souls out of their bodies and consuming them. We know this balefire erasing very souls from existence. And we know, we know in the deepest parts of our uh, fandom here that there are Trollocs cooking human body parts and eating them. Presumably in a lot of scenarios where the humans are alive as well. But we're still not seeing a lot of graphic content in the battles themselves and Swan Sanchez is the character I chose to focus on this for because with her death 
for example. She died in an explosion. In an explosion! But the only thing that we get from Min, the only thing that Min sees is Swan's dead eyes staring upward. Do you feel, you personally, Drew McCaffrey, do you feel there was a lot of horror to the last battle as much as you were expecting as a younger man? Or, perhaps were you expecting something a little grittier? Um... Hmm. I don't know if I really had an expectation of grittiness. Uh, I thought I was going to get real myself. Like, I was... Ugh, I was ready to white-knuckle my way through this. I, I... I wouldn't say that my expectations were um, missed when I read this. I think... Um, I think it. I think it met my my expectations. Yeah, I don't want to say it missed my expectations either, um, but I don't know. I feel like if this had been done from Robert Jordan's point of view, it would have been I don't know, a little, uh, just a tad bit darker, just the littlest bit. Particular. Uh, I was gonna say with Shida Haran, but that's completely aside the point. That's the one that really scared me. Have you uh, found what you were looking for? Um, not yet. I I did see that the Shara. Like, Battle of the Wild reveal was Brandon's, but nothing about Demandred versus Lan. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just something that, for me, so personifies Robert Jordan as a person, as an author, when he was writing The Great Hunt, and it was Lan giving Rand that almost fatherly advice, um, and everything about sheathing the sword to accomplish your goal, and the fact that the last battle itself ends on that exact note, with that exact sentiment made me feel that Robert Jordan was supremely behind this final scene, in that he might not have written it word for word, but somewhere in Robert Jordan's notes, I'm sure somewhere in Robert Jordan's notes was Land kills Demon Dread and his final lesson to Rand. Or something along those lines. Uh, I, yeah, I would not be surprised. Um, I, I have some reservations about that, but I, sure. I will discuss those next week. Okay. Because they depend okay. on things that happens after. Got you, um, got you. But yeah, overall though the scene the scene itself is is outstanding. And whether it was Brandon or Robert Jordan, it was a, a very nice callback. You know, it was thematically appropriate. Uh, I vividly remember when I read this scene the first time. You know, we were we were all out in Provo for the midnight release. It was the day after. You know, the day of release, and we were at like a. I don't know, a Denny's or an IHOP or something across the street from our hotel eating. And, of course, we all had our books at the table. Did you? And I was sitting oh, that sounds on, like, like such the, a good memory. On the edge of the booth, and, and I, like, full-on, like, yeah, I was being a little dramatic, but I, I like, tipped over out of my seat. <laughs> and and everybody else, like, I, I was the furthest into the book among the four of us who were there, and they were all, like, yelling at me for, for being dramatic. And like, what because of something that you oh. read and you were like playing it up because you just wanted to screw with them like you do with your buddy Rob when you text him you know in the middle of a work day saying oh <laughs> hello demon dread no I mean it was less like screwing with them and more just like <laughs> holy cow what an incredible moment that I had this reaction so presumably to you would say at that point you would have been the furthest and I'm just going to try to riff off of that uh, extrapolate from that you would have been the furthest one in but it would have just been fur just newly released I'm thinking you probably were still in the prologue um, it was, might have been Graindall sipped at her wine. That might have been the moment, perhaps. Do you actually? I should have asked you that. Do you remember what moment that was? 
Because that would have been presumably before when I, we got to this part, I so we could talk about was it. was in the Denny's? Yeah. No, it was when Land killed Demander. That's what I was saying. Oh, you were already at that point in the Denny's? You were already yeah. three quarters of the way through the book? Yeah, it was, it was like the following morning. Oh, the following uh, morning. Sorry, I thought it was yeah, it's like that night. Mid, okay. Yeah, I said I so we went to the midnight release, and then it was the day of the release. Okay. After the, yeah. Got you. Yeah, I misunderstood yeah. that part. Okay. I thought you were still <laughs> at the very beginning of the book. Still, though, that's... Okay, I see. Yeah, that must have been fun yeah. to play with their expectations in that way, though, wasn't it? Admit it. I'm, so it wasn't It wasn't like a conscious thing. I wasn't trying to screw with them. It was really? like I actually had this reaction to reading that scene, and they were all yelling at me to, like, knock it off. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, hey. Because it was just so awesome. It was such yeah. a great moment. First off, I mean, what are you going to do? Suppress that fangasm just because your friends no. are nearby? No. no. <laughs> and also, hype up the expectation. That's awesome. No, I, I can absolutely see that. Yeah, and if I remember right, they were all, like, either in the last battle chapter or getting close to it. So it was like, they knew. They knew that it was something in the last battle that I was reacting to. <laughs> like, <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, so one of our uh, reader questions actually has something to do with something that I wrote down to already discuss. And that oh, was from nice. Simon Flesher, who says, Andral's and Pivara's bond... And how they can use each other's talents and powers. Uh, my yes. my point about this was very very similar, and I just wrote down: interesting to see Pivara using Andral's talent for gateways. The two-way uh -huh. bonding is a source of so much hard magic gold, and I'm interested in knowing if Jordan had any notes about how such a mutual bonding would work. Was this perhaps Brandon's take on how that would work? Answering perhaps a lot of fan questions he had seen. What do you take away from this, Drew? Uh. My takeaway is that I am nearly positive this was all Brandon. Uh, I I don't think Robert Jordan had any plans for a double bond this way. Uh, I think this is Brandon extrapolating on the previously existing magic system. And I can understand why some fans would not like this. Uh, because it Has feels there been a little... A sentiment? Like that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It, really? Because it feels okay. a little bit like a Deus Ex Machina. It's like it's a completely unheard of new magical ability, um, that that comes along in the last book. Yeah, but it, it doesn't really affect the entirety to... of the plot. So I would say that doesn't qualify oh, for Deus except, Ex Machina. Except if this didn't exist, oh the seals, the whole black, the black tower doesn't get resolved. Logan gets turned. The seals are broken. Like. Oh, so many the things seals. get fixed because of this double bond. I and I almost guarantee that had Robert Jordan finished writing the series, the Black Tower uh, sequence with Logan versus Taim and all that would have gone very differently. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, no, I okay. So I hadn't actually considered the fact that if if Andral and Pivara hadn't formed this bond, the their entire. Um, heist if you want to call it a mini heist of mm -hmm. retrieving the seals would not have actually succeeded i didn't consider that so i can see the like the legitimacy in in, in saying yeah. that it's a bit of a deus ex machina and I can on see top that. of that okay. the the whole like heist scene is pure brandon sanderson like mm. the whole the whole idea of like a mask of mirrors on top of a mask of mirrors is 
is like a hundred percent. Yeah, especially because you have one character, right and for me, what it was <laughs> was one character that needs to make sure the entire audience follows what's happening, and so they have to state the obvious. And this kind of frustrated me just a tiny bit. It didn't really yeah, yeah. pull me out of the moment, but it was Andral saying, "You're you, you're gonna make me look like Andral." Like he has to make mm-hmm. sure that he he explains the joke to the reader. I was I was in that moment. I wasn't rolling my eyes, but I was a little just the tiniest bit pulled out of the moment, going, "Okay, yeah, we get it." But yes, I hadn't I hadn't considered that. But see, what what makes me consider the alternative, and the alternative being that Robert Jordan perhaps had a lot to do with this, is that I imagine this is a question that Robert Jordan was badgered about endlessly. What would happen? if a male channeler and a female channeler bonded each other. It's such, if you look back at it, it's such an obvious question to ask that I bet Robert Jordan was badgered about that. Perhaps that was one of his least favorite questions because of how often he probably was badgered about that. So I imagine Robert you know, Jordan would have had to pl- had to at least entertain that notion and plan a, you know, a preemptive answer to that. You know, I do not recall, at least... Among the many, many interviews and questions recorded on Theoryland, I do not recall any questions about really about a mutual bond in that way. See, I would not have thought to ask that. It surprised me when I read it for the first time. But in retrospect, it seems obvious to ask that question, doesn't it? I mean, it, there are tons and tons of bond, uh, bond questions about, like... Um, is it possible to bond a merdral or like? But nobody thought to it... ask, "What if a man and woman bond each other?" We have male channelers and female channelers. I don't know. Uh, it... Yeah, there, I I haven't seen it. There's interesting. a lot of questions about um, the difference between a man bonding a man, a woman bonding a woman, a man bonding a woman. You know, like the different like setups there. But I haven't seen one being like, what if an Aes Sedai and an Ashaman bonded each other? Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, st- I will still admit what I said the first time. I didn't think of it. I didn't think to ask it myself. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was a great um, That was a great question. Oh my God, I can't speak. A great question from Simon. Yeah, questions about like, you know, is it possible to, to pass magic. a border or any bond to a non-channeler? And he raffoed that. Hmm. Um yeah, but he he doesn't uh, he doesn't really talk about um, talks about like what happens to bonds when they go into steading. <laughs> really, he managed to talk about how, what, what happens to bonds when they go into steading, but he never mentioned anything about mutual bonds between male channelers and female channelers. Well, I mean, I guess well, people asked have had him to... about the water bond and the steading. I guess he wouldn't have had to explain that about anything during the Age of Legends because the Water Bond didn't exist during mm-hmm. the Age of Legends. That's also something that we want to make sure we, we note. The Water Bond is something that even the Forsaken are surprised by. They had never seen anything like that. Hmm. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, there's there's it's food for some thought. really, really interesting things in there. But yeah. <clears throat> I do want to talk a little bit about Matt and his role in the last battle. I don't actually have a lot about Matt and his role in the last battle, even though arguably he has the biggest role in the last battle. Uh-huh. Um, but there was one point at which I was very fed up with Matt. And by extension, I was fed up a little bit with Brandon at this point. And it was during Matt's note to Galad. Um, uh-huh. where he's taking all of the time in the world while he's undoubtedly stressed to get orders sent out in time 
to add extra words just to make fun of Gilad. And just to mm-hmm. poke fun and just to just to keep adding jokes in his written language as well as his spoken language. And it's like, dude, I can see Matt somewhere in like a command center that's on fire and there's people screaming orders and there's channelers nearby and explosions. And he's taking all the time in the world, extra valuable seconds out to to add an extra line where he finds a way to make fun of people. It's like it just Matt is still pragmatic enough to see oversee everything that's happening. I just to me it felt like a little too much um I don't know, a little too stereotypical Matt to, like, an easy way out, just to try to add some humor into a, a scenario where it wasn't really necessary. So wanted to ask what you thought about that. Does Matt joke too much? Uh, yeah, I, I do think he does. Uh, this okay. is one of those situations where, like, it's it still remains Brandon writing Matt yeah, and trying to make Matt a comic relief character when that's not what Matt is. It's a discordant note amongst the symphony that is the last battle. It's like, it stands yeah. out to me a little bit. A little yeah. bit. I mean, I think it's funny we're, we're kind of like criticizing a lot of little things in here, but I know, a yeah. lot to praise. I mean, there's a lot oh, yeah. to praise. By and large, I think this is a very well-executed chapter. Oh, yes. In uh, fact, I talk about the things that I don't like more often just because it's so hard to find these things, honestly, mm-hmm. from an author like Brandon Sanderson. Um, but there are little ways in which that he he uh, he inserts his style into the Wheel of Time that I don't know feels uh, it didn't feel quite what we had been expecting, and this is one of those ways. But there, like as you said, there are so many things that Brandon did that were fucking incredible, <laughs> and I, I still definitely want to get on some of those. Um, but is there anything that comes to your mind right away before I continue? Because I realize I've been talking quite a bit at this point. I have everything to go glow about, a few things to complain about. But um, I want to see if you want to propose a subject of discussion before well, I continue. Well, kind of sticking on that topic of like Brandon's style creeping in, and, and yeah, you know how like it, it's like discordant sometimes, but yes. sometimes it's not discordant and it fits, even oh, though it's my very patently Brandon. Okay. And one of those to me was uh, Talmanis and the dragons, where they hid them in this, like, cavern with no entrances. This was a thing that It was genius! Wasn't it? Purely, like, uh, it, it, it's, it's a Brandon Sanderson-esque twist, but it fits so seamlessly into, like, what the characters would do. Like, it, it makes sense for them to decide this, not only like in the strategic picture, but for those specific characters, like it, it, it works. It, it isn't him changing a character to act in a Brandon Sanderson way. It was taking the characters and adding a Brandon Sanderson, uh, like plot point that fits with their already existing, you know, thought processes. So what did you think about that, uh, additional verse of Jack of the shadows? I loved it. I loved every single word of it. We give a yell yes. and a bloody curse and hug the maids. It could be worse as we ride away with the Dark One's purse to dance with Jack of the Shadows. Yes. That so is that was so Band of the Red Hand. Oh. Yep, and and I, that was like kind of where I was going with this. Like, oh, sorry, I didn't a, mean to steal your thunder. It's Go a brand, No, not at all. You 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 fit right in. Um, it is like a, a very clearly Brandon Sanderson edition. But it fits with the already established Robert Jordan story and characters. Where throughout the course of these books, since the first time we heard Jack of the Shadows and Fires of Heaven, there have been new verses added yeah. on. Yeah. 
you know, we, we get the scenes in, in Mayoron where, where Matt thinks about how the band of the red hand is like coming up with, with new verses and like, and so it, it just makes sense. It makes sense. And yeah, it's yeah. beautifully done. Can I just say, this is something that I did not actually write down to, to <clears throat> discuss right now, but it's something I just thought of. Um, this is something that could only have been written by a fan of the wheel of time. Only somebody yes. who truly understands, <clears throat> pardon me, who truly understands the soul of the band of the Red Hand and everything they stand for could write mm-hmm. a verse like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When when it comes down to it, sure, there are some criticisms to be had about, like, oh, Brandon was too much a fan. Like, this is too fan service at certain points. But ultimately having somebody who was a fan and and knew the wheel of time and had read the wheel of time over and over again yes was the only way this could be satisfactorily completed yes it was the only way the personal touch is the best touch regardless of anything else that i have said i mean I, i i cannot argue with that um and i cannot think of anybody else who could have done this on the level that brandon sanderson could have had um I want to talk about Ruark real quick, real quickly. Oh, Ruark. I'm really Ugh. bummed. My man Ruark, done as cold so as he sad. was. I mean, I, w- I will challenge you and I will challenge anybody else, this, who listens to this podcast, or this even this segment of the episode. I challenge you to name one time in the entirety of the series of the Wheel of Time that Ruark was anything but the perfect gentleman, clan leader, and father figure. Oh yeah, he's, he he's did not fantastic. deserve. He did not to <laughs> deserve to go out the way he did. Taken by Grandel's mm-hmm. compulsion, I am glad that, of course, it was all of all people. It was Avienda that took mercy on him, in yep. typical Aiel fashion, as we see. You know, having seen Gaul do the same thing in the previous episode, but I think it would have been a better use of the whole true love overpowers compulsion shtick, perhaps coming from somebody who's as amateur as I am, by using it to maybe maybe to save Ruark instead of. You know, just seeing Avienda as maybe perhaps seeing Avienda as a daughter figure rather than the way to me that feels a little forced later on, not to go into spoilers for the next episode. I don't know. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of Ruark. I hadn't had much of a chance to say that in this series proper, but I'm saying it unfortunately now at his death. Rest in the light, Ruark. You did your yeah. people well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was definitely one of the moments in this chapter that um, hit me the hardest. Uh, most of the deaths, I will admit, did not hit me super hard. Um, uh, partially, that's because I didn't particularly care for most of the characters who died, at least who died like on screen in major scenes. Um, you know, there were a couple characters that I, I wish got a little more of a scene but i understand the decision making you know like with Swan right or, right or i can Bashir, think of a few like, myself here where, like it yeah like let's be honest here this is the middle of a that war people a will just die like they just up and die not every character is going to get like an epic send-off yeah um and so but the the two major characters who do get these epic send-offs are gawain and egwi and i don't particularly care for either of these characters uh, so for me, Gawain, it was more just like anger. It was like, dude, like you were an idiot in life and you were an idiot in death. Like, 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I, 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 I don't mean to make fun of that by laughing, but just, I have to draw this point right here while you're on that point, Drew, and say that a, a commenter, a listener, C. Routon, has just said those words. I'd like to hear you guys explore your going <laughs> I oh, He yes. literally oh, just it's... said those words as you were saying that. So I have to, <laughs> I had to interrupt there. I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt your flow, but I figured uh, it would have yeah. been appreciated later. Well, well so with Gawain, there's there's like this little whimper of an attempt to redeem his idiocy where like Galad, you know, finds him as he's dying and he tells Galad, Hey, you have a brother, you know, don't hate him. Like, yeah. And, but it's like that, that seems so, so much like too little too late. Well, we got a little bit of that last episode or last book. I should say he, he, at one point he said to Elaine, like he was in that scene with Elaine and he he gave up on his hatred for Rand. We already got that bit of closure from Gawain. So to me, like you said, it felt a little, you know, too, too little too late. Uh, But, but what's more important for Gawain in this book is (laughs) his idiocy with the rings and like. uh, Listener Kyle Pollock, Gawain attacking Demandred. Heroic or selfish. They are literally <laughs> commenting on the things we are talking about as we are talking them. In Perfect. the moment. That's I can't believe this is happening right now. Shout out to mm. C Route and Cy Route, and I apologize if I get your name wrong. And Kyle Pollock. You guys, that was amazing. <laughs> um Yeah, and, and so like Gawain just went out like a chump and he lived like, <laughs> like a, chump. a chump. Like unfortunately. I would have wanted with, more for him. With a Gwen. Okay. So this is this is a yes. major major scene. Yes. She is the only one of the two rivers five who dies. She stands out. You know, she stands alone in that regard. Um, what the uh, what the the death scene for her does is perfect in a thematic sense. To me, at least, it, okay. with the way I read her character, where she is, um, when you drill right down to the base of who she is, she is a very driven woman who aspires to ever greater heights and wants to do good, but doesn't always go about it in the best way. I agree with that 100%. If someone were to summarize everything about my feelings about Egwene, I think that would be the perfect way to say it. You nailed it. And so her dying in this manner is perfect for the way she lived. Because she is striving to fix an evil in the world. And she goes about it in a way that is self-destructive. But it is specifically self-destructive where she is reaching for too much power. She is a martyr. She is a selfish she's a martyr. martyr. In a, in yeah, a way, like, a selfish martyr. Yeah, in a like, way. I'm, I'm not saying it's selfish of her in what no, she did here. I also but, say But yes. the, the symbolism exactly. of dying, drawing too much of the power is perfect for who Egwene was. Well, she if was also, always the one reaching for more power. You also more consider knowledge. the parallel between her... And uh, Amon's wife, uh, I can't remember her name all of a sudden. How did she die? She died in a very similar fashion. She was drawing Amon's too much of the wife. Oh, Amon. Oh, sorry. You, I the way you said that is like is pronounced the same way as Amon, like the the 
Zell Naga devil in Starcraft 2. Oh! Like, like, Sorry, what? A-E-M-O-N. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. threw me off. Uh, you're, you're thinking of Eldrine, yeah. It, Eldrine, yes. Yeah, in yes. Warring Story from one of the first mm-hmm. scenes that we got in to, to discuss yeah. in the Wheel of Time. Very clear parallel there. Yep. Very clear parallel there, and I was a big fan of it. And I thought it was, again, another full circle journey. A lot like Lan's character and how he, to us, in a, in a huge fatherly way, opened up with a theme and chose... To, if he needed to end his life on that theme with Egwene mm-hmm. we see a lot of the same thing with as like her parallel with Eldrine and I thought it was it was moving it was spectacular it was totally badass I cannot deny that Egwene was a huge badass in this scene yeah oh yeah I mean she, she takes out what like how many hundred Sharon Chandlers like, like, she yeah, takes hundreds. out Tyene yeah. and, and I, yeah it's I, it's, I do want to really say a spectacular scene despite all of the bitching I had about Egwene in the past, and the bitching I'm sure I'm going to do in the future, I still have to give her this much respect. She went out like a boss. And I mean literally. Yeah. I, bet, I bet the Sharans were hearing boss music when she arrived for that last time to kill Taim and, and to die herself, if need be, with Vora's Sa Angriel. <laughs> Can you imagine what that was like to be from the Sharans' point of view? There's boss music oh, yeah, in their yeah. head. I guarantee you there's boss music in their heads. It's like something so, straight out of Doom. Uh, I want to share another little anecdote uh, that I will never forget from oh. when A Memory of Light came out. Uh, so okay. on the old you know, Watt Mania and then read and find out, there was a particular user there whose screen name was Cannoli. And he was not a fan of Eggween, to put it very lightly. Fair. Uh, he, okay. he wrote an entire series of articles called... Uh, Egwene is evil. Oh wow! And and like had like alliteration, a scene okay. by scene, line by line breakdown of everything she does in the series that is awful, and and he went way overboard. I mean, he he did have a lot of very good points in it, but he also went way overboard. Like, uh, I don't think you're going to find many people who actually believes Egwene is an evil person. But no, uh, he, he pointed so. out like, the, the value in his series of articles was that he pointed out a lot of the flaws in Egwene's character that people tended to miss because they would read into the point of view trap. They would they would accept her at face value because they're in her head. And instead of taking a step back and, and judging her actions and thoughts in a greater context. So it had value to it. But when this particular guy finished a memory of light he posted a review of it of course you know as many many people did on the forums back then okay okay and he had you know like he had a whole breakdown thing and he didn't say a word about Egwene in the entire thing he had probably like four five thousand words didn't say a word about Egwene I'm and sure that stood out to the end you get to the end and there's one last line and it's just ding dong the witch is dead <laughs> <laughs> what the hell man okay so i got a little more context now for something that you said a little while back too you said something very similar about her i can see the point where you the inspiration you took there yeah. at one point yeah no Egwene. oh my god i mean come on she wasn't evil she wasn't a no she was a not terrible evil. character at no point did i argue or did you argue or do we honestly feel that Egwene was not looking out for the best for everyone well besides uh, perhaps herself ooh. First amongst yeah. <laughs> equals. But she was looking out for herself in a larger part. But she did not have any malicious intents. 
There's nothing. Yeah, she she was not inherently an evil sinister about. She was a selfish person, uh, who who had occasional bouts of selflessness, um, but she she was ultimately like her selfishness was generally geared toward what she viewed as the greater good. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, her opinion on the greater there are just some like you know differences in morality there where you know there's some like do, it, do the ends justify the means kind of things going in there and yeah a lot like that. what I said about Gowan she did everything with her heart but maybe her heart wasn't always in the right spot <laughs> yeah yeah you know yeah but they're perfect for one another you know despite that despite that I I do think this was a, a very well executed ending for her character it was a very satisfying character arc in terms of like where she starts at where she ends at everything makes sense she didn't dramatically like take a left turn as a character there was a a very gradual well-constructed progression of who she became as a person and it ended in a place that just fits both for the character and symbolically. God, this is this is so surreal because it's just occurring to me now that this is likely the last time that we talk about Egwene. Uh, yeah, it may be. <laughs> oh no, we'll talk about her a little more in the next episode. Will we? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to say I'll, I'll change the subject a slight bit, and I'll say I was getting a little frustrated. At the amount of 1v1 duels with, De- like, Demandred. Yes. By the time that Lan charged him, I was saying quite literally the exact same thing that Demandred was. What? Like, another? Seriously? I mean, okay, obviously Lan is the one that I would have picked to go against Demandred solo with Bear Steel. Um, if you had asked me beforehand. But after we'd already seen Gawain and then Galad fail to kill him, I, like... We kind of got the point. Demandred is a badass. And I know the point of this particular scene is not that, that Demandred is a badass. But it was overshadowed for me by the fact that it was our third time seeing it. Looking back, mm-hmm. I feel like this scene could have been far more hyped going in if perhaps we had only seen one character on the blade on the Blade Master level try this and then fail. It leaves me thinking that one of these Demandred duels shouldn't have happened. Which leads uh, me to the obvious question, which duel? And the answer is obviously Gowan. <laughs> right? Yeah. You, you, yeah. Um, I think what you are hitting on here, though, is a symptom or an example of one of the very few large-scale criticisms I have of this book, uh, the way it was executed, and that without going into more detail, because I'll cover this next week there is a a tendency to have these like the same story beat hit one two three times one two three times one two three times and like and where the first time it's like oh whoa crazy and then the second time you're like oh oh okay and the third time you're like oh this again you know and so uh it's not just the duels but the duels are probably the most blatant example of it okay so are there other examples but i can't think of another example particularly that has three instances like uh yeah i'll i'll bring it up next episode okay oh okay (laughs) because two of the three instances of this happen actually three of the four instances of it happen in the next 
Okay, that's fair. So, that's fair. <laughs> um, I'll continue on my my feelings about Gowan here, though, so we can wrap up his character too. I uh, I wrote down, dude, Gowan, like, what are you doing? I hated everything about this scene. The fact that he decides to try the blood knives to Angriel, the fact that he decides to try them <sighs> not out of desperation, for example, to save Egwene in a moment of need, but because he's frustrated at not being able to kick enough ass. You know, I, I came out of Towers of Midnight for the first time, finally ready to turn the page on Gowan and start appreciating him more. After, like, think about what he did. He saved Egwene's life in a spectacular fashion. Uh, he, he gave up, like I said, on the, in that scene with Elaine, he gave up on his hatred of Rand, realized his folly. And then, in this one minute, he decides, nah, I'd rather be just a total child and commit, you know, practical suicide because nobody appreciates me enough. He, I think mm -hmm. he should have known what his chances were and what that would do to Egwene. As much as I have railed against Gowan for, and, 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 and continued to stick up to him, or for him, grudgingly stick up for him for, his last decision in life was to prove Egwene right about every flaw, I can't speak, oh my god, every flaw <laughs> that he has. You know, yeah. he, he thinks of only the person and not of the station. He proves her right till the very end. If sitting through the last battle in a chaise and eating grapes was what was required of him to save Egwene the suicidal pain of his death, he should have been able to make that sacrifice, I think. But instead, he decides yeah. to risk it all on a childish tantrum. I thought, like, what an idiot. The only thing I regret about his death, there's only one thing. The only thing I regret is that he didn't manage to win. But that's besides the point. I mean, Gowan is a real badass with the sword. He's probably might be outmatched by Galad, but he's, oh, you have to definitely. remember, he's improved significantly since he killed Hamar and Kulin. But you also have to consider the fact that he had not one, but three blood knife Turangrial on yeah. at the moment. He should have killed Demondred. The Forsaken is still just a human being after all. If Demondred was 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 going to use the one power in his duel, okay, I can see Gowan dying. But oh, as Demondred said, he, he was, like like, hey, he was throwing rocks. He was throwing clods yeah. and stuff like that, but I don't know. I just feel like Gowan obviously he wasn't as good as Galad who probably isn't himself as good as Lan, but Gowan is still close enough that with the, the aid of those three rings, he should have been able to at least bloody him. I thought in that moment that uh, Demon Dread was a bit of a Gary Stew. He was just way too powerful. No human could be that good. I, I think, you know, you, you have a pretty fair argument there. I didn't have that problem personally, but especially because, like, yes, Gawain is a blade master, but based on, like, you know, the, the events of the series and some things that you know, have come out of the notes, like, he was on the low end of Blade Masters. Sure. Uh, but Gawain was. Yeah, and, this... and But more importantly that, he was overconfident. He didn't think yes. he was on the low end. And sure. that overconfidence, like, I mean, as as we see with the Mandred, overconfidence can be fatal. Yeah. And this is, so, this is a, <laughs> something I brought up as a, as a gripe back all the way in The Great Hunt Part 2, I think, with Rob Winchell, when I was just arguing about the... the... Turak? Yeah, with the Blade Master duel with Turak and about what a Blade Master means. This could just be a reader error in just that I hold a Blade Master on way too high of a pedestal. But I feel like any Blade Master, regardless of whether or not they're at which end of the spectrum they're on, if they qualify for the title of Blade Master and they have three rings on 
they should have been able to at least bloody Demon Dread. That just felt a little too inhuman from somebody who was ultimately portrayed in the end as dying because of their humanity. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, so. On the other hand, uh, yes. I would like to point out the selflessness of Aegeanon, or Lyelwyn. Yes! Uh, in offering herself as a warder, a replacement warder, to help stabilize Egwene. Yes. In the in the aftermath of of uh, Gawain's death, there, uh, I also thought this was a really clever and um, fitting resolution to Egwene's prophetic dream from a couple of books ago. From I believe oh. it's the beginning of Knife of Dreams, or maybe it's in Towers of Midnight. No, not Towers of Midnight. I thought uh, you were going uh, to say Crosswords of Twilight, uh, where she Egwene has her her two dreams, uh, one where she's climbing a mountain. And and the path starts crumbling from underneath her, and a Shanshan woman with a sword on her back like climbs down to help her, and saves her. And then the other one with the uh, the lantern with the white flame, and two ravens fly out of the darkness and hit it, and and it yeah it doesn't yeah. go out, but it sheds a lot of oil, and it's and it's dangerous. Ten or eleven, something like that. Yeah, I believe it's in Crossroads of Twilight, um, because she tells. She tells uh, the Aes Sedai, as soon as she's captured and wakes up in the carriage in Knife of Dreams, she tells yeah. Katarin about it. She's like, you gotta listen to me. You're gonna get attacked by the Shanshan, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, like I said, it's it's a satisfying um, conclusion to that uh, dream prophecy. Definitely. Definitely. I really quickly want to discuss... I know I'm kind of beaten the that horse into the ground <laughs> if you want to call it that but galad's duel with demandred i thought that was far better than gawain's he didn't um, sorry go on i thought the the scene itself was better uh i have an issue with the aftermath of it but i'll bring that up kind of okay next okay episode, fair I enough um, i want to say i i did like how um how galad went about it with a different mindset yes and yes and uh and a different methodology really like yeah you know he was much more thorough about it he was much more prepared which you would expect of galad (laughs) he was straightforward um he didn't attack demon dread from behind which would have been unsatisfying if he'd won i can see why gowan did it i mean you're fighting the forsaken honor at that point is not as important as winning um Mm -hmm. but Galad didn't choose to do that, which would have been unsatisfying. Um, he didn't risk the emotional sanity of the Amerlin with that decision, you know, besides that point. And he was confident and straightforward until the end. Do we fight, Son of Shadows, or do we talk? You know, I love that line. I so wish that Galad had been the only one that we saw duel Demon Dread in a 1v1 until Land showed up. I, I like. Yeah. I, I think personally, it would have been just enough to show how skilled Demon Dread is, without risking a jaded reader, if you want to call it that, by the third and most important duel. I was glad to see him actually draw blood. Um, I was glad to see him lock up with Demon Dread and literally try what what I thought was really cool, a really nice touch to try and outmuscle one of the strongest channelers of all of the ages. Like, Galat managed to survive the duel, I thought, with more honor than Gowan showed dying from it. Mm-hmm. So, I thought, big uh, thumbs up there for Galad. 
I yeah, I'll I'll agree with that. Um, Galad in general, I just really like him as a character. I didn't uh, at first, but I do. I appreciate him a lot more now. Yeah, like it's it's funny to think about how Galad and Gawain were received in Eye of the World, where Gawain seemed like the cool brother, yeah, and Galad was like the uptight like killjoy you know and then as the series goes on you realize like well wait a second galad's like actually the smart one galad who, is steady like, yeah he he, he, he makes, never wavers he makes from... one decision that's pretty questionable and that's joining the children of the light but he makes that decision from a very informed place where he went back and like read the original yeah uh you know text and he sticks by that original text not the modern day incarnation of the children of the light. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't buy into their prejudices. And yeah, so no, we... he becomes the model child of the light. Yeah. So, so ultimately Galad is like a role model, really. Like he's the guy who does his research yeah, no. and makes informed decisions. <laughs> and he's the one that shows himself to never waver from his particular philosophy of mm. doing as much right as he can for himself and everyone around him, particularly yeah. everyone around him. Say what you want to about Galad. Uh, he was definitely introduced as a kind of um, uptight, kind of sneering, um, better than everyone else, holier-than-thou character, but he never wavers, not once, from his basic moral philosophy throughout the entirety of the series, and he finds a way to make that moral philosophy work, and at the same time, have a huge influence on the last battle and in that influence i mean changing the entirety of the ideals of the children of the light he actually did some yeah. positive for them that's amazing in and of itself that accomplishment alone is amazing so yeah. galad has you know what two big thumbs up for galad i didn't expect to do that when i first met him but two big thumbs up for galad agreed agreed yeah shall we talk about oliver okay or do you want to yep. save that one for the last episode? Because you could if you wanted to. No, I want to talk about him now. Because okay. there was one scene that I forgot about Okay. Uh, until reading this. Because Can once I... again, this book I have read the fewest amount of times out of all of The Wheel of Time. I read it the day it came out. And then I read it again a couple months later. And I haven't touched it since. Damn. Uh, it... Uh, you know, so there are things in here that I'm like, oh yeah, that's right, um, that I had forgotten about. And one of them that stood out the most to me here was the Ulver scene when they when they finally get the gateway back to Marilor, and Aravine reveals, you know, that she's a dark Her true friend, colors. And, and, yes, and all of this is happening, and Ulver's like, you know what, screw you, and he pulls the knife and he stabs. Yes, back. that's and, the like, moment I have not, here. Yes. Not Aravine, but the, the Channeler. Um, the Channeler, the Aes Sedai, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was like, okay, that was one of those moments that stands out to me as a, a very matte thing. And that's kind of why I think Brandon started understanding Matt more in this book. And it's not necessarily because of specifically the Matt scenes, but the way he wrote the characters around Matt. Talmanes, way better in this book than he was in Gathering Storm and Towers of Midnight. Much more like himself. Ulver. Vintage Ulver. Here. 
And not only that, acting and growing as Ulver would seeing Robert Jordan's Matt, not seeing Brandon Sanderson's Matt. Like, he, he acts the way you would expect for, for Ulver to act. And that was a, a good choice on Brandon's part. It, was, it shows that he was really gaining a better understanding as he was working on this. As he you know, has worked through 900,000 words of text yeah. writing The Wheel of Time that like, you know, it, there is only so much understanding you can get uh, reading until you start writing a character. And I, I recognize wholeheartedly that I'm over here being like an armchair author uh, telling you know telling you guys what I think Brandon did wrong <laughs> but uh, like it's a lot easier to criticize than it is to create and 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 I think it's it's really a note in Brandon's favor that he did learn he didn't just sit back on his laurels after writing the gathering storm and say oh no all of you are wrong I got Matt right mm. I just did a big reread of the series and I blogged about it and I know him and you guys are all wrong no like he he sat back and he received owned the it. criticism. No, he and, owned it. Yeah. Oh, very much so. And worked to get better and wrote two more books where he improved. And he not only improved Matt, but he improved the characters around Matt because the way they react and learn from Matt became more organic and more natural to the Matt that Robert Jordan wrote. Again, if going back to sense. something I mentioned, it absolutely does. This is something that can only be ha only have been written by somebody who was a fan of the Wheel of Time, mm -hmm. and then grew mm -hmm. on to bigger things. I was so pumped for Oliver in these scenes. I, if you had asked me beforehand, I really didn't think he was going to have a large part to play. I didn't know how that would have slipped past me though, because it kind of <laughs> seems obvious in retrospect. Um, but I'm glad that it did because the surprise was pleasant. I cheered for him so much. And this is the point that I wrote down, Drew, that you were talking about when he jumped out from behind cover and he revealed that knife and he stabbed that Chandler in the back. You know, he, he whispered that phrase in the old tongue, it's time to toss the dice and he freed Fael. I am going to formally propose this as the moment Oliver made his choice and stopped being a boy. And became a man. He became a man. Hmm. Okay. I don't care I if he's only that's... nine years old or so. This was the choice of a man. And I just wanted to say right on, kid, which I guess is kind of oxymoron. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I wish I could buy him a beer for that one. That was <laughs> that was amazing. I loved what he did. And the horn sounder. What a perfect moment. What perfect writing. The boy raised a golden horn to his lips. Yeah, so I had a, a weird experience with Ulver uh, in in the last battle here because up to this point, you know, obviously I didn't know it was coming, but I did know about the Robert Jordan, uh, you know, quotes where people had asked him, "Oh, is Ulver a guy all Kane?" and and he like sort of lost his cool then he's like look i i don't understand how this is still a thing i don't understand how people are are asking about this still the timing doesn't work obviously he's not and then he goes on to say there's another plan for him he's not just a red herring and that always stuck in my head and that when we started getting these over points of view i was like oh that's right Robert Jordan said there was something in store for him. 
something like, in store. I had no and, context. And so I was not but, ready for but it. But I never but I never imagined because I was too dumb to to think about the the fact that Matt did die. Technically, he died <laughs> yeah. at one point at one point that we weren't ready for. Yeah, he that you know the the horn bond was broken in Camelin. Um we thought I was on the tree. Perhaps. Well, no, I, I never, I never thought it was. No, sorry, on not the tree. we, not we, as in you and I, but we, as the collective fandom. A lot of the fans thought, oh, it must have been on the tree if he's going to have died. That was the prophecy. Well, but, that, well, they that was that was made, another but... thing that I also because I like stayed up on the Q and A's where Robert Jordan very equivocally said, no, he almost died on the tree. He didn't die. Oh yeah, good, good to yeah. know that the man himself made a very clear yeah. distinction there. Well, I mean, there's a, a quote later in this book that puts the nail in that coffin yeah for sure uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad that that the that robert jordan himself yeah the um uh the expectation was there for me like okay what is all we're gonna do and then i wondered seeing him knife that channel back i'm like okay he's the one who engineers the return of the horn to matt and then the twist happens i'm like oh my gosh no it's was there a so moment? More than I want to ask this. This is something I hadn't actually considered to ask, but now in the moment I've just considered it. Were you concerned in that moment when Oliver raised the horn to his lips? Were you concerned in that moment or any part of you that this was perhaps something going horribly wrong? No. Um, I I vividly remember him raising the horn to his lips and me thinking, like, actually, like that's a pretty good idea. Like, whether it really? works or not, you're at least... Like, it's the sound of the Horn of Valir, and some people present on this battlefield have heard that sound before, and they yeah. will know, like, hey, we gotta get to this sound. Okay, okay. So, so you're, you're looking at it more from an authorial point of view at that point. For me, I'm gonna offer something converse. I thought in that moment, I was looking at it and going, oh my god, that's not right. But then, 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 I considered what I was thinking... 12 books previously as Matt was doing the same thing on Toman Head raising the horn to his lips because at that point I had thought well it's the horn of Valir it's it's a huge deal against the shadow it has to be the Dragon Reborn's weapon and I hadn't like when Matt was doing it in The Great Hunt I thought oh my god something is going terribly wrong so in that moment in A Memory of Light when Oliver did that at first I had the initial reaction of starting to get indignant like oh no something seriously terrible is happening but then I remembered exactly how I felt 12 books previously and went, oh my god, that was perfect. Let that he was who brilliant. sound me think not of glory, but only of salvation. Oh. <laughs> oh my god. I hadn't even considered that. The actual yep. quote. That's yep. amazing. It's, it's so well done. And I'm, I'm just so glad that Oliver, of all people, was the one to finally place lip upon bronze. <laughs> that was amazing. Nice. Yes, thank you. Ooh. Alright, so now comes a moment that I've been waiting for, not only since we started recording the podcast well over a year ago, but I've been waiting for this moment for ten years. Maybe maybe longer. And this is a moment where I get to rub something in. Not to you, Drew, because you you believed in me the whole time. But a bunch of faceless in the Wheel of Time Facebook forums that existed back then. I don't remember if it was in like the big Wheel of Time Facebook group or even if it's that old. 
Um, I just searched before we started the episode today. I couldn't find any forums at all in that group. Um, but there was one day, many years ago now, when I decided to post a theory idea in what was definitely a Facebook group at the time, a Wheel of Time discussion forum. And that's all I remember about where this happened. But my theory brought forward um, something that I'd noticed about a particular line in The Shadow Rising. Book 4. And this particular line was from Lanfear, no less. It was in Chapter 9, Decisions. I, I may have actually drawn a point about this in our episodes in The Shadow Rising Part 1. I'm not sure if I remembered to do that at the time. It was right before the stone stands. Lanfear corners Rand, and she reveals her true identity. And for uh -huh. the first time, she offers to rule the world beside him. And in that little speech of hers, she makes reference to Colindor. She sneers at it. Well, okay, she was she's actually sneering at Rand's power rot sword of flame, but the context of the conversation was Colindor at that point. And she says precisely about that Saangriel, only two more powerful were ever created that a man can use. One I know still exists. Now, my theory that I proposed was Oh my god, guys, there is another Saangriel. There is one more powerful than Colindor out there. In I got flamed. Every single comment was some variation of, dude, she's talking about the Shoyden Cal. There's two of them, duh. But what I kept on insisting... She specifically says... Yes, go on. Two that a man can use. Yes, she specifically... Well, I said, why did she specify that a man can use? And everybody in that freaking forum, especially two or three particularly stubborn guys... Um, just kept repeating, well, Rand has both the access keys. He gave Nynaeve the female version of the, you know, to cleanse the source. It's still in his possession. He used it for his own purpose. So I, I actually remember this thread. Do you? Uh, I, I don't remember which group it was in, but I remember one. Uh, I remember the guy who, who brought up, he's like, oh, he still has the two keys. And I pointed out, I was like, Rand didn't have the keys when this conversation took place. Um, oh, that's a good point. I that, considered that. There were a, cu a couple other people in that thread who who pointed out, they were like, oh, well, I think Robert Jordan just didn't have the the magic worked out at this point. <laughs> and, and, and as a, and as a, a, like, a piece of evidence, they brought up how um, in The Dragon Reborn, Swan talks about Kalendor and says that, like, it, like to the Wonder Girl, she's like in your hands. You could like level the walls of Tarvalon with Kalendor, and and how that's proof that he planned Saangreal to be used by anybody early on. And it was like, oh come on, dude! Like yeah, clearly Swan wasn't saying like you can use Kalendor. She's saying like just to make a point about how powerful this thing is. Yeah, like yeah. What what got me more was I think somebody in that in that thread had also mentioned well if even if there was a, I'm listening to my internet troll voice <laughs> even if there was a saw Angriel more powerful than Kalendor I highly doubt we'd not have heard about it until now but because I was being <laughs> so openly doubted by so many people with what I thought was pretty good logic I may or may not have gotten a little indignant which led to a lot of them attacking me for being what I can now admit was, and is, a bit of a pretentious asshole. But, guess what, mother... Fast forward, <laughs> years later, and you can kiss my ass. Oh my gosh. This Sa'angriel exists. It's called Sakarnin. 
Yep. Holy cr I can't uh, articulate the satisfaction that I had when reading that Demon Dread had a Saw Angreal that was even more powerful than Colindor. I made the effort to try and find this post for today so I can give more precise information and maybe to call out the idiots that were doubting me, not by name, but just by what they were saying. But I couldn't find it, so sorry, everyone. I know you yeah, were I all... I don't remember which group it was that. in. It might it have definitely, been in the Screw You All, I Love the Wheel of Time group. Maybe. It was definitely on a forum in the Wheel yeah. of... In any... Some sort of Wheel of Time group. Discussion yeah. group on Facebook. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I just wanted to say, hey, everybody, I was right. I'm just going to be selfish right now and point that out. So. Yeah, I, I, I can't blame you at all. I will, <laughs> I will and have uh, experienced about... Uh, theories that I got right that people doubted. Yep, it, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> um, really, um, uh, Egwene's death. I already talked about that earlier, but there's one tiny, one tiny thing I had forgotten to mention about that scene with Egwene's death and why it really hit me as hard as it did. And really, it was because of another character's reaction, and that was Rand's reaction. Her death really started to hit me hard when Rand was in the pit of doom slash outside of the pattern going, not her, please not her. Mm-hmm. By the way, Michael Kramer, probably my favorite male audiobook author, delivered that one perfectly. Oh my god, the amount of pain that he managed to put in Rand's voice when that happened. Amazing. Nice. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. And then after that we get yeah. to rent to Land's duel with Demon Dread in <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh. So one thing that we haven't talked about, uh, but it's kind of been in the back of my mind, okay. um, that I want to get your response on, and, and our okay. listeners as well, let us know, you know, in the in the conversation. Um, this entire chapter happens in what is essentially twilight. Okay. It starts in the morning, but the sun, there's no light from the sun. And and it, it's it's easy for me to forget that because like I just when I'm picturing things in my head I just naturally picture you know whatever daytime I know it's daytime so I picture like the sun's out you know maybe really sky. but like but but they were a couple of points in this reading through it that like would always drag me back where I'd be like oh that's right it's dark and one of those was uh like the duel with Galad where there are like lanterns shining illuminating the scene and in the darkness yeah and like and and then again with land where there's this image of all the fire arrows coming down and, and like carving an arc yeah. into the lines for him to like let's light like away a landing strip yeah. for him to you know cruise him. yeah and uh it, it, like was it the same way for you or or do you just like always have that image of this being dark in your head it was the exact opposite for me Okay, okay. The entirety of the book, like, the only scene to me that felt like it had sunlight there, there was Marilor, when Rand was originally making his declaration of his, his requirements. Everything else from that point forward, from the time that, it, that Elaine was observing her city burning to the very end mm -hmm. of the book, every single minute to me felt like it was in darkness. Interesting, okay. Yeah, so like uh, there were a few scenes that, like like outside of Kyrian, when I think of 
Andral opening the gateway to spew lava. Oh no, the lava to me is shining glowing light and flickering See, lights I and everything around it. I never thought about oh. it like that. I never, but it's so much cooler when you do Yes, it, it like absolutely that, you know? is. That's why I thought it that way, because this is the coolest thing I'd ever written, or written, read. <laughs> yeah. It was the oh, coolest oh, the thing I'd ever read. out, everybody. Uh, Rob Santos is yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm about 12 years younger and way, way, way dumber. <laughs> Uh, that was that was not a, what I thought you were going to say there. What did you think I was going to say? <laughs> way, way, way more Canadian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Am I, am I that Canadian to listen to? Do I sound that Canadian? Sometimes. So, I, I imagine when I speak very quickly or when I get drunk, which is a lot of time on this episode. So I can actually, on these on these episodes, so I can see that actually. That's a good point. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, Demon Dread versus Land best way to end the last battle um well i guess we do have uh listener questions we can get onto now i'm sure i've i mean i know i've yes, brought up a couple of them at this point but i know we've had a couple more in the interim here let's take oh, a look we? here <clears throat> definitely oh uh actually this first one is a spoiler i can't actually say it from mark geller oh. it's about rand i'm not gonna say what it oh. is <laughs> mark warren so okay so half of his we've already um established and half of his we can continue to establish mark warren asks do you think it works as one chapter thoughts on the various deaths did mm -hmm. brigitta in that part in particular oh. devastate you on your first read oh my gosh i was horrified really in that scene when hanlon and the other dark friends show up and just like slaughter everybody and hanlon just like beheads brigitta and then it ends that scene ends with him being like, oh, we can just carve out the babies. See, that's amazing to me that you call him horrified. Hanlon. To me, it's Millar. It's like, that's who he is. Hanlon is just the, the facade. Oh, no, it's David Hanlon is who he is. Doyle I mean, Millar was his was his uh, cover name. Really? I thought I, I thought it was the other way around, but I, I totally no, admit no, that no, I did no. not look that up he's, in any way. I could be totally he's, wrong. <laughs> he's David Hanlon before he's Doyle and Melar. Okay, okay. Melar was his cover name in the Royal Guard. Got you, got you. Yeah. He's introduced as David Hanlon in, I believe, Oh, I know he's Crown introduced as David Hanlon, but I thought perhaps that was yeah. that was his spy name. That was his cover name for the Shadow. Got you. Though. Okay. No, no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but anyway, yeah, I was horrified by that scene. I was like... That was, in fact, maybe more than anything else. Um, that scene felt like the low point of this chapter, where like everything was falling apart. Was it perhaps uh, in the indifference with which it was performed? No, because he me, just like it was, it, it was the personal, like the personal threat to Elaine. Uh. Where so much had been made of Min's viewing, saying the babies will be healthy. And Elaine using that as like, you know, scripture and and saying, oh, I have plot armor because of this, essentially. And then here we're presented with a situation where that is no longer plot armor. And this is, you know, after so many major characters have died. And you're like, are, are we really going to go here? Holy cow. <laughs> See, there's a, there's a particular moment in, uh, I forget who did the read-through for or the reactions 
for Tor.com. I think it was Lay Butler, who uh, at yeah, one it was point definitely Lee. It was Lee. Yeah, Lee. I'm sorry. Is that how it's is that how it's pronounced? Lee. Oh, yeah. I Lee. It was Lee. That's my that, that's my bad. Absolutely. Um, there's at one point where it was said that uh, oh god, how exactly was it put? It's, oh, this is this is the point at which things are really going to start to suck. And I read that and I went, oh no, oh, am I going to absolutely know this moment when it comes? And my God, did I know that moment when it comes? I do believe Birgitta might have been in that exact moment. Was was actually, hold on, wasn't there a follow-up? What, which? In which, uh, wasn't there a follow-up in which Lee actually uh, explained which scene broke down to which particular reaction? Oh, ah, that rings a bell. I swear to God, there was a follow-up, wasn't there? It's been seven freaking years of... I know, it has... I think there was, I think there was, where she said, although, mm, or maybe it was, because I know there was like a beta reader, spoiler-free reactions thing for Oathbringer, and then maybe they revealed which scenes... I thought spoiler-free reactions were like a common thing. For like tour big releases at this point. Oh, I mean they they pretty much are. I'm, yeah, I'm saying yeah. with the follow up thing. I can't remember if it was a memory of like oh Lee the follow up yeah Oathbringer one. But I, I I think you're right. I think it was Lee doing. It had to be because I'm pretty ones. sure Lee said that. Uh, for example, one of her earlier points was Rand pulling the seals out of his pocket. Like really in his pocket? That's where he was keeping them. Mm-hmm. I think it was. Mm-hmm. I think that I do think that was it. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think like the, the last battle had to be the point at which that she wrote that particular reaction because oh my god, and the death of Brigitte is so emblematic of that entire sentiment of having to accept that oh my god, we are not going to have any plot armor, we're not going to have any protections against yeah. what's coming. You know, mm-hmm. the indifference mm-hmm. with which Doylen Millar slash David Hanlon just beheaded Brigitte and was so smug and, about it. And you know. What made it probably the worst for me was how just a little bit previously, Birgitta revealed she's like, I don't remember anything. Yeah, she had just hit rock bottom. She had just previously hit rock bottom. Yeah, because there there were just so many things about this one particular scene that were, as you said, rock bottom for characters that A, are important, and B, we care about. And, like, like you can make an argument that Gawain didn't go out at rock bottom. Egwene didn't go out at rock bottom. But here, Brigida does. And Elaine is about to. Because there's yeah. no way Elaine's going to survive a battlefield C-section. Like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, Joy Kristen Allen, from whom we've had a few questions previously... Yeah, What's up, Joy? Joy? She asks, after all the years of waiting to get to this one chapter, was it worth it? And which parts did you think worked the best? Now, I realize we've been loosely beating around this entire bush the entire time. But there is that last stipulation there. I want to ask, what part did you think worked the best? Oh, man. This is from Joy Kristen Allen. What part worked the best? That is that is a tough question with I know, such it's, a big chapter. I ambushed you with that one, didn't I? Well, she ambushed us with this. No, I asked for it. She didn't do any ambushing. <laughs> um, 
Oh, what worked the best? It's tempting to say Land versus Demandred, but I actually can't. And we'll talk about that more next week. I, I uh, want to throw some knee-jerk reactions out there. I want to say Lan lighting the way for uh, Lan, a uh, Tam lighting Tam. the way for Lan with the fiery arrows. Um, damn it! I want to say Egwene going out like a boss. I don't know. That's a really good question. Maybe we come to Egwene that in the next episode. landed really well. Oh hell yeah, it did. Despite how much um, I bitched about her, Egwene went out in the most badass, respectable way, and I would oh. I'm going to drink to Egwene in a second here after I pour another one. Man, this is... I'll tell you what, we come back to this in the same episode, but we give it until the end of the episode to to answer it. Give you some some time to figure it out. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Okay, so we have another (laughs) question from C. Routon. And we already answered one. The first half of this, I'd like to hear you guys explore Egwene's death. But the second half really, really intrigues me. I want to get your take on this, Drew. Loghain searching for the scepter that Demon Dread gave to Taim. Loghain being in somewhat of a shady gray area, what would he have done had he gotten it? What would he have done? Yeah, what would have been the fallout of that had Loghain actually decided to go for the power Uh, and go for Sakarnan? I have always thought that had he gotten Sakarnan, there would have been war between the towers after the last battle. Yes, yep. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that, yeah. And that because he didn't, and because he is forced to uh, gain a different sort of understanding of power and adapt a different kind of role yeah. going forward, uh, that there is a unification, yeah. not immediately in the future, but down the road. I think that would have turned him at that pivotal and character-identifying moment down the wrong path into somebody completely different. Yeah. And I fully agree with what you said that would have absolutely led to war between the towers and the downfall of humanity as we knew it. Yeah, like I don't think it would have turned him into a dark friend or something like nope. that. But, nope, but just a power-hungry tyrant, him... perhaps. Yeah, exactly, a power-hungry tyrant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something that we might actually want to discuss on another episode because this doesn't really have a lot to do with the wheel of time series as a whole but this is also something fascinating to discuss uh c routon also proposes he says i feel like they might try to merge Logain and time in the prime series do we want to talk about that at a later episode don't need a reaction from you right now no what do you think uh we can talk about it right now uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think they will. I think if anything is going to happen with merging, we're going to actually get Time Andred. Okay. Well, that's a, yeah. That seems uh, quite obvious so, considering the the fandom's expectation beforehand. So Rafe has already been on the record as saying he's expanding Logain. Uh, he thinks Logain deserves a more uh, thorough uh, establishment as a character early in the series. Uh, Logan, he likes yeah, okay. Logan a lot as a character, so I I don't see them combining them. Uh, but I think there's too like much I to be said, gained. I could see I could them see against a, one another myself. Yeah, I could see a Time Mandred uh, reversion, where maybe they make the clues more subtle in the whatever sure. season is Lord of Chaos, and and go down that route where. Demandred killed Asmodian, and yeah. Demandred takes over the Black Tower, and they do something else with the Sharans. 
Um, and in fact, I kind of hope they do that. I kind of hope they do that. Yeah, I can, I can see that because that's how I always thought of it as a kid, and I'm sure as a lot of people thought of it on their first read, on their first read through, that time and Demandred were actually a thing that they were this one and the same. Um, mm-hmm. So, so what you're saying, I guess, if I want to summarize what you're saying, if I can, is that you're not so much on the, um, you know, tying main. How would you pronounce the 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 other two? I don't know. You're not wait, so much on wait, that train wait. as you are on the on the Tamandrid train, right? Wait, wait. What are you What are you saying? Uh, what what, 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 what C. Routon said? No, no, no. C. Routon was was talking about Loghain and Taim instead of Taim and Demandred. Oh, oh. Uh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So I was um, just trying to come up with like a merger between Loghain and Taim, and I came up with Logaim. <laughs> Logaim. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I or Taiane. <laughs> I like Taiane. Yeah. No, Logaim is better. I think. Yeah, Logaim. <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah. more like Forsaken, esque. Oh. Yeah. Um. So let's see here. Sirautin, Kyle Pollock. Gowan attacking Demandred, heroic or selfish. We've already covered that. Oh, and just the last one, which is not really a question for us to address today, but something I thought would be entertaining to address right now. Rashid Karugli. What's up, Rashid? He's a patron. How's it going? He says, I have no questions, just tremendous sadness that in a few weeks it will be over. But what I responded already with is, the podcast is never over. Only our read-through of one series will be, do you like Brandon Sanderson? (laughs) <laughs> and i will also say this is our read of the main series we will have a future episode or two on new spring uh we already have a uh, an episode on strike at shale ghoul that i i know for a fact not many people have listened to uh we will be doing future episodes on the deleted sequences from a memory of light uh those being river of souls and a fire within the ways Yep. Uh, we are we are not done. We are never done with the Wheel of Time. <laughs> <laughs> and just growing up as such huge fans of the Wheel of Time and being influenced in such a huge part as we have been, there is no way that we are not going to be continuously bringing up Robert Jordan in almost every single conversation we have going forward, right? I mean, yeah, like, pretty much. Robert Jordan is such a huge, like, seminal part of our upbringing in terms of our reading that, I mean, he's always in the back of our minds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excellent. And that uh, and who knows? Maybe up. maybe if we go way down the rabbit hole, we'll end up doing like some Robert Jordan Conan books or or the oh my god, Neil oh my records. god, <laughs> wouldn't that be a trip? <laughs> that maybe maybe for Patreon. Devil. Warrior of the Altai was already a trip. I would love to do something like that in the future with the I, I kind of I kind of wish like the the further removed we get from Warrior of the Altai, the more I wish there had been a sequel to that. Really? Uh, just to see how ridiculous it got. Because yeah. by the end of that book, like there was some really ridiculous stuff coming into it. There were some there was know? a lot of big things <laughs> happening at the end there. Uh, yeah. But so that, that wraps uh, up everything anyway, I want to say on the last battle for now. Uh, so I wanna just talk a little bit about like pull it back out to the, the writing perspective here. Okay. And you know, as I promised at the beginning of the episode I wanted to talk about the direction of the plot and who made which decisions. Yeah. I don't, I don't know everything and I'm just going off of a few interview quotes I've seen here and there, uh, with this, but as far as I understand it, Robert Jordan left no direction 
on how to handle uh, Gareth Brine and Swan. Uh, that was a, a decision made by Harriet and Brandon. Okay. And he didn't leave any direction on how Egwene was going to end up. What? It, now, that, that surprises was, me. That surprises yeah. me a lot. Um, like, he didn't say, like, oh, Egwene's going to go invent the Flame of Tarbalon and take out Taim. He didn't even specify if there was an opposite to the Balefire? Uh, ooh, I don't know about that. I just know that, like, the direction for her arc ending wasn't Because of the fact that there was an opposite to that weave, and the fact that it was called the Flame of Tarvalon, I thought that might have been something that was inserted by Robert Jordan so much earlier. I don't know. That, that that was the impression that I got, early, at least. Yeah, no, it, it is. Um, it, from from as much as I understand it, like he didn't leave much about her character after what we got in, uh, uh, Gathering Storm. With her uh, consolidating her power in the tower. Yeah. Mm. And that he he had some like skeleton notes, but he didn't have anything like fully fleshed out. Uh, and so that is one thing that I, I wanted to highlight: how so many of these deaths here were the choices of Brandon Sanderson and Harriet and Team Jordan in general. And I think they did a just overall an astounding job on specifically choosing the deaths yeah yeah i can agree with that yeah like to me um i wish swan had gotten you know more time but i understand the reasoning behind how she died and ultimately especially with seven years of hindsight i i can't complain um especially when we're going to be getting into the black company here soon and i i won't complain about any of the deaths in that series and they are very much like this because that's a series written by a man like robert jordan who served in the military who saw action who saw death really and understood how uh how just sometimes in war people die where you're you're doing your own thing, you're you're staying alive, and you turn around and your buddy is dead on the ground over there. It seems like, callous. It seems poignant, but it's thematically appropriate for the subject at hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 on that black company topic, obviously we're gonna get much more into this, but like, oh boy, uh, the the reason that series was written was because Glenn Cook came back from his tours of duty. And thought to himself, you know, I love fantasy books, I love sci-fi, but where's the fantasy for the soldiers? We have stories about heroes and kings and prophesied chosen, you know, chosen ones, and like, and and we don't have anything for the frontline soldier. What is it like being the Gondoran knight out on the field of Pelennor fighting against Sauron's orcs? What is it like being? you know, uh, the the random Andoran guard 
fighting against the Trollocs pouring out of the gateway in Camelin. Like, and, and so he, he decided to write a series about that rather than about the, the Tolkien hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, like fantasy. And, and I think it's, it's going to be really nice for us to transition from the wheel of time into the black company because there's a good bridge there. Both Robert Jordan and Glenn Cook fought in Vietnam. Both saw combat. Oh, it was the same both war. Understood. Even. Yeah, both understood the same experiences, and yet they both came out of that experience and wrote two very different series with some of the same underlying themes. So we're going to have a lot of fun in a few weeks here. We're, we're not going straight into the Black Company after A Memory of Light. Uh, we're going to do Shorefall. I don't know if we've made this announcement yet, but we're going to do Shorefall by Robert Jackson yep. Bennett, um, the the sequel to Foundry Side, which comes out. We're recording this on April 19th. I believe that comes out April 24th. <gasps> that soon? That soon? I thought it was like a month still. No. We're no, talking no. like five days, bro? It's, yeah, it's like this week. Oh, um, man, I'm excited again. April 21st, excuse me. It comes what? Out on it's Tuesday. the day after tomorrow? It's literally oh. 26 oh, hours it. from now? Oh, crap. Okay, well, I f- I'm going to just announce this right now. I failed as a, a reviewer. I got an advanced review copy of this, and I'm only 58% of the way through the book, and I, I meant to have my review, like the book done and my review written. Uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> like... Okay, well, I know what I'm doing the rest of today. <laughs> Let's wrap this up, my man. Holy crap. Okay, yeah. So anyway, um, uh, as far as the deaths go in the last battle and, and in A Memory of Light, it is it is something that works for me and it it shows an appreciation for the mind of Robert Jordan that so many of these deaths were not his deaths. They were, or, or like at least the way they were executed. You know, he, he may have just mm. had notes like, you know, Swan and Garth Brynn die. And then Brandon working with Harriet and Maria and Alan came up with the way they're going to die, you know, and, and, it feels genuine to what Robert Jordan would have done. Okay. Yeah, no, I definitely agree so. with that. Um, shall we head into the final draft? Okay, I'll start since I have what is, as to be expected at this shall. point, the uh, least interesting entry for today. Um, I have started to drink small <laughs> amounts again because I'm in a quarantine. I'm doing some more writing. I'm doing a lot more um, hobbyist kind of stuff, gardening, and I decided to go upon inspiration from watching Trailer Park Boys recently. Drew, you told me you were getting into Trailer Park Boys very recently. Have you continued to watch? Not to talk about the show itself, but just to yeah. ask roughly. Uh, I am. I think I. Sorry, what season like was that? You cut out here for a second. So it's into season two right now. So okay, yeah, got you, got you. Um, I'm drinking for today what I have since learned was the whiskey that they used on that show for Jim Leahy, the trailer park supervisor in that show. So this is, even though it's always been blurred out on the show, this is a authentic, cheap, trailer park-esque 
Canadian whiskey, and this is Alberta Premium. And in terms of how it tastes, I mean, it tastes like a very cheap whiskey. Oh, okay. I wouldn't recommend this to anybody looking for a particularly savory or refined experience. But for the price, it's just right. And for drinking little bits at a time while you're talking about an episode that you've been waiting to glow about and to party about for a long time, it was still pretty appropriate. So Alberta Premium, cheap whiskey, good stuff, mixed with a splash of water like I normally do with the scotch. And I can't, uh, I can't wait... To, to drink what I'm going to be drinking for the next episode because it's going to be something that I have drank before. I have brought on the episode before, but I do reserve it for special occasions for a reason. So, can't wait to talk about that one again. So, Alberta, Alberta Premium for today. All right. All right. All right. Nice. Yeah. So, oh, yes. I actually you mentioned that. have been drinking two different beers over the course of this episode since I... How we made one episode about two hours. How did the, how did we do this? It looks like my expectation was right. <laughs> uh, and the beer I was going to bring in, I realized was only a twelve ounce can. So I was like, well, I should bring in a second one. Um, the first one I drank though, uh, which was my uh, second option, it's from Four Hands Brewing. Company. A what now and what a stout? Peanut butter and jelly milk stout. I heard you. I'm just asking indignantly why. Peanut butter and jelly milk stout. So, they describe it as a fresh take on their milk stout. This new variation is brewed with the same peanut butter and chocolate as the original, but now includes a huge dose of raspberry. And it is 7.5%. I have to admit, uh, I was super disappointed by this beer. Uh, I, I've heard really good things about it. And uh, I was expecting a lot of peanut butter. I was expecting a lot of chocolate. I was expecting, you know, like a really full mouthfeel. I got none of those things. It was basically like uh, raspberry juice. Um, uh, yeah, unfortunately disappointed. Oh, but this is Absence God. of Light by Four Hands Brewing Company. Drew, Andrew McCaffrey. How are you going to follow and. that up? How are you going to follow that up? <laughs> Tell me. Just blow my mind. I'm going to well, shoot well, this I'm gonna, right now. I'm going I'm to follow up waiting in the water with waiting a, for the final blow. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> I am going to follow it up with a bourbon barrel-aged hot cocoa stout from Temperance Brewing Company. Uh-oh. Which was, unfortunately, also very disappointing. <laughs> uh, this was a licorice bomb. Oh. It was pure Twizzlers. Twizzlers. I do like Twizzlers. I did not I get much no, cocoa or marshmallow Twizzlers out of it at all. Stuff, man. Um, yeah, this one was a little disappointing. This is the 12-ounce can. It's a 12.3% ABV bourbon barrel-aged stout. But it is Might called Might meets right. Meets right. Okay, okay. I, I will admit to having liked the first title a lot better, but I can see why this one is mm, so much more thematically appropriate for what, what we're talking about, because this is the ultimate decision. This is the ultimate battle. This is where everything is culminating into an example of just that. It is. It is oh, indeed. oh, man. Oh but, man! I mean, I've been oh. through this on previous episodes. I've talked just, to Rob about this offline. <sighs> just wait till next week. Just wait till next week. I, if I ever beat 
the beer I bring in next week, I I will be I will be surprised. Cause it it's the name the name is perfect. Exquisite. And the beer itself would you say is like the most hype the most hype beer. So I've never tasted it before. The beer that I'm bringing on. I I hope it is as good as it is advertised. Uh, for any of our beer, you know, beer nerds who follow us or, or beer drinkers, there's an app called Untapped where you can check in beers and, and uh, rate them out of five. And if you want to see, uh, get a little glimpse in, in advance, follow me on Untapped. You can <laughs> see which beers I check in every Sunday. Um, <laughs> uh, but on Untapped, with, with the way the ratings work, right? You know, so it's, they aggregate global ratings and you can rate on a scale of 0.25 from zero to five. And, uh, you know, so for instance, this Mike Meats right, I just gave it a 3.75 out of five. I gave the peanut butter and jelly milk stout a 3.25. It is very difficult to get a global rating above about 4.2, 4.25. Like, you need everybody who's drinking your beer to really like it. The beer I'm bringing in next week is currently sitting at a 4.66 global rating. It is one of the highest rated beers I've ever gotten my hands on. And the name is perfect. So All right. I am All right. Extremely I'm extremely excited to freak to out in an undue week. manner and embarrass myself <laughs> once again. Yeah. Yeah, so leaving uh, that little teaser for what's to come, yep. this has been episode 64 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, as we said, is the final Memory of Light episode, our final main Wheel of Time sequence. We will be covering chapter, chapter 38 through the I don't end. know what to say right now. Like, we are... Oh, man. Are, I think the Wheel of Time, time the coming. Eye of the World, was episode 27, 28? I want to say 28. No, 26 was Foundry Side. I want to say 26. 25 was Calamity, yeah. But it's somewhere in there. Was it? Okay. What are the odds of that? Okay, then, then it would be 28 was, was Memory... Or, oh my gosh. Uh, 20... No, 28 no, Rune of Kings was, 33. was Eye of the World, because 27 was Rune of Kings. No. No, we did Rune of Kings Didn't in between the Dragon Reborn right and the Shadow Rising. Eye of the World? Yeah, dude. Holy crap, did we really? I know that I know that for a fact. Wow. Did, we, yeah, we Foundry went side straight to the from, World Part 1. We went straight from Foundry side into Wheel of Time? <laughs> Am I blowing your mind? No way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. So, no. Uh, 23 was Steelheart. 24 wait, was... Actually, 21 was Arcady Martin. 22 was Arcady Martin. 23 was Steelheart. 24 was Firefight. 25 was... Calamity twenty six Foundry Side Part One. Oh wait, Foundry Side had two parts. <gasps> did we? Okay, did I? Did I? Did I mess something up here? Okay, so I'm going back through. I messed something up. We just discovered this in the middle of our outro. We just discovered on SoundCloud the Eye of the World. Oh no, no, never mind. We didn't mess it up. I forgot the way uh, SoundCloud has things layered. Uh, if there's a spotlight episode, which we have Eye of the World Part 1 as, um, it doesn't appear in the normal queue. 
So when I was scrolling through, it went from 26 to 28. And I was like, wait, what the heck? Did we miss number? But it's because I of the World Part 1 didn't appear. So Damn, yes, we've been doing it for a long time. That's the point I was trying to get across. The we've been doing one. it for a long time. And then it's going to be episode 65. Yeah, no joke. Granted, not every single episode in the interim <laughs> was real-time-based, but it took us that long to get through what we thought was a justified, or even remotely close, review of Robert Jordan's main body of work. Yeah, go ahead. And I want to just put this out here. I still have radio. Uh, I just poured some raise a glass be able if, to hear it if you have something in hand, because oh. today... We were supposed to be recording uh, these episodes. Yeah. So this is where at I Jordan Con in Atlanta. Yeah. This is where I tell everybody that I had previously and, beforehand. Yeah. Um, though I had been, bu- um, uh, bugged a lot of times in the in the many years previously that I've known Drew to go to Jordan Con. I haven't actually traveled to meet Drew in person or been to Jordan Con yet. Despite the fact that I've known Drew for ten years now or more, and now we have a whole group that we talk in. And that we're a huge part of this. That we're, we're we're all huge friends in this group, very close friends. And this was the first year that I was supposed to go down there. I had bought tickets. I bought a plane ticket there and back from Toronto to Atlanta, and from Atlanta to Toronto. I had reserved the hotel for four nights, and this was supposed to be the year that I so I showed up and surprised everyone, without telling anybody that I was going to show up. And then the Rona happened. Yep. Uh, right now, we yeah. are supposed to be in a hotel room in Atlanta, Georgia. Then it happens. Yeah, right now, would we would be sitting at CouchCon recording probably a Wheel of Time retrospective episode with a bunch of special guests. And that brings us to what I was saying earlier, where, you know, we may be ending a memory of light. I like that. But we are never done with the Wheel of Time. Because when we go to JordanCon next year... The special episodes with all the special guests we were going to do are going to happen next year. So, keep keep your calendars marked for, like, whatever, April 24th yeah. of 2021. That's going to be a pretty epic weekend. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, that, that JordanCon. And I'm telling you, for yep. any of our listeners, if you haven't been to JordanCon, check it out. It is just an absolute blast super fun time not only is there a bunch of great wheel of time content there but there are other tracks there's a a whole sanderson track there's a workshopping track where you can like work on costumes you can learn how to make chain mail they literally had a chain mail making workshop last year um uh they they have a writer's track an art track they have a whole art show costume contest i mean it's it's incredible uh and it's also a relatively small con uh, I think the most attendees they've ever had was just shy of 900. So yeah. when you show up, you're going to... I've experienced this from the outside for 10 years now, and I still feel like fun. part of the family. And I can't wait to actually experience this in person. <laughs> so, I mean, for next year, my plane's already paid for. They're in back. And guess what? My ticket's already paid for as well. So yeah. next year, I can't wait to see you there, everyone. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. So that said... Uh, we're going to move from some downer news to some good news, at least for us, and hopefully for all of you guys. Uh, yeah, we did. This weekend, we Uh-oh. hit our first stretch Uh-oh. on Patreon, and that means uh, <laughs> uh, that means we have some 
special content coming your way if you're a supporter on Patreon. Uh, we're going to have a, a very entertaining video uh, dropping in your inboxes. Um, it, especially if you're uh, a Stormlight Archive Cosmere fan of Rob Santos reading the end of Words of Radiance for the first time. And uh, beyond that, though, I am also going to be dropping some special new fiction, short fiction of my own, as a thank you for all of you and your support on Patreon. This helps us pay Pat. Like, as of this stretch goal, we can completely pay Pat from Patreon. Nothing's coming out of our pockets to pay him anymore. That is a huge, huge thing for us. Uh, our next stretch goal will be to pay Danny for her art completely you know with with our our patreon uh you know we've been saying it from the beginning we believe in paying people for what they you know what they work on we're not you know we're not here to make money on this podcast like you know that's that's not why we're doing this we're here to bring content to you guys and the people who are supporting us in this you know pat doing the sound engineering danny doing the incredible art uh, we we want them to you know get what they deserve for all of their hard work and you guys are really coming out to help that happen so thank you thank you as always i am your host drew mccaffrey with me is my co-host rab santos thanks for listening and we'll catch you next week for the end of a memory of light